The Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state. For full video episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode four of The Radical Secular. My name is Sean Prophet. I'm coming to you from Henderson, Nevada. My name is Christoph Defoe. I'm coming to you, coming to you from Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, I don't know what the nickname is here. I think there's like, I don't know. We call it Dirty Jersey City sometimes. Let's go with that. And we have with us our guest, uh, John Kirbo. Uh, I'm in Chinatown, Manhattan, New York. Welcome. Well, yeah. first, I want to do a few, uh, a few show notes just to talk to everybody a little bit about what we're doing here. Uh, we have been basically building this plane of this show while we've been flying. And we started out doing uh, a few weeks ago doing our first test episode. And, uh, you know, we're still branding our channel. We've got some exciting logo art coming. Uh, really brilliant designer named Tim who is working with us. And uh, so at this point, we have not done any advertising or promotion whatsoever. We're just kind of sharing this video with our friends. We hope you will share it as well because we're trying to grow our audience. But soon we will be launching the uh, Facebook page, a rebranded Facebook page and, uh, and our YouTube channel and starting to promote. Uh, thinking also we're going to probably post this video on Facebook video as well, it's just because we want to have as many uh, possible uh, avenues for people to see it. But we'll be getting some very positive feedback and thank you for all of that. Um, so I guess we'll start off. I'll just let me just jump in real quick too. Um, another thing we're going to try and do is um, you and I talked about this earlier, Sean, is about uh, you know trying to sort of make sure that our guests are, are that we do get on are, are, are diverse, right? So we have different perspectives. Um, uh, certainly, we could use some. We could certainly use some women around here. That'd be great um, to, to sort of uh, yeah. get this. This is a dude fest over here. Dude fest. Um, it's a little dude fest. <laughs> like the military. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like the military. Uh, yeah. That'd be great. Uh, I think that kind of perspective would be different. So we got you know some other perspectives um, as time goes on, and um, you know, uh, and a global perspective as well. You know, because we're all you know we're all we're all Americans, and uh, exactly that's uh, another one. Global perspective is good. You know, uh, gay, transgender, uh, Latino, Latina perspective. Um, you know, we'd like to get uh, you know a Asian. Every we want. So, if anybody is out there and you would like to be a part of this, you would like to talk to us on the radical secular. Our really one thing that we have in common is that we do not want uh, religion and politics to mix. We think that uh, separation of church and state is the most important thing about our constitution, and uh, uh, we also believe that uh, you know equality. Uh, cosmopolitan uh, liberal uh, uh, approach to reality is the really the only approach that uh, matters. So if that's how you feel, if you uh, want to be a part of a conversation about that, then uh, please, you know, contact us on Facebook or wherever. And, uh, you know, we see if we can get you on the show. Absolutely. And another thing we're going to be trying to do as well, we're going to try and get, I'm, I'm going to be working a lot on the sort of social, uh, social element of this. So we're going to try in terms of social media marketing. So soon we're going to have our uh, Instagram account up and a Twitter account up. So I uh, definitely encourage you uh, to follow those as they, as they develop. And like, like, like Sean said, we are really developing this on the fly, having a good time doing it. And so uh, we'll sort of continue to update you and let you know as things sort of evolve. Um, so I guess that's probably a lot of time doing show notes that we should probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we got to do our, one of our traditions here in the show that we've established is, uh, you know, we're doing our, our, our t-shirt. So if you come on the show, you got to bring a t-shirt of one sort or another, something relevant, something that has uh, as a story for you. So uh, mine is obvious and uh, we're seeing a lot of treason uh, in this administration. And uh, especially this week, we'll be talking a little bit about that. 
And uh, Christoph, what uh, does your shirt represent? Sure. So um, this is uh, this this shirt is um, from the movie Starship Troopers, and um, and that movie in the Mobile Infantry is one of the is like the central feature of that book and that movie, uh, both of which are very very good. The movie is yeah. a cult classic. Um, but the point is, the reason why I'm bringing it today is because we're going to be talking a little bit about. Um, uh, well, the point is, this movie is a, is about a fascist system, essentially an authoritarian system, but like a, like a benevolent one, kind of. But anyway, that's sort of the stick of the whole thing. But we're going to be talking today a lot about um, some of the sort of more fascistic uh, elements of the uh, of the Trump administration, particularly out in Portland. So I thought that was sort of a relevant uh, tie in there. Yeah, and John, we'll uh, throw it over to you. You can take it away. Tell us about your shirt and your background. Sure. So the shirt is basically, uh, it says Terminate Hate. Uh, you see flowers coming out of the, the rifle there. Arnold right. put this shirt out after Charlottesville. You know, he's like, uh, we don't need to terminate Siracana. We need to terminate the Nazis, the bad people. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. But uh, I think it symbolizes something we can all organize around as Americans across tribal partisan lines, across ideology. If you're a halfway decent human being with half a brain, this makes sense. Um, the debate is how do we best go about it? So my background I was in the uh, active army for about six years, and uh, one of my focus, one of my areas was, uh, broadly speaking, special operations or irregular warfare, specifically psychological operations. So, how do you understand people at the psychological level, looking at cultures and behaviors and the wider environment they're in, and how do you influence people for a behavior change? How do you keep, you know, mitigate Shia Sunni violence, get people to vote, talk with tribal elders, talk to whether it's shop owners, sheep herders, the whole spectrum of human psychology and behavior, we try to use that on the battlefield as a force multiplier to reduce violence as well as to try to make peace. And there's many different types of PSYOP. It's not all friendly, but it basically is about understanding people and how do you uh, influence behaviors. And that's very relevant because when I came home, I had the training, the experience to I had the ultimate bullshit detector. Whenever a politician opened their mouth and they were doing their marketing campaign, whether it was corporate propaganda or someone on TV running a political campaign, I saw the tricks they did and I saw the way they were playing on race and resentment and psychology and dividing people, uh, whether it's poor blacks against poor whites or whether it's trying to appeal for insinuation and dog whistle. And I, you know, I understand the Marx, the you know, Lenin's playbook and the way the Kremlin uses that same playbook to manipulate people across cyberspace. You know, I could train a ten-year-old in their mom, you know, with a four-pack of Monster to manipulate liberals and conservatives on Facebook. I could train that ten-year, uh, maybe like a fifteen-year-old. Give me ten minutes, I could teach them how to use certain talking points to go into certain Twitter spaces to get people to shout at each other, to get feminists and men's rights activists to yell at each other. So. With the, what the Kremlin is currently doing to us to undermine our democracy and to try to capitalize on our vulnerabilities. Um, I've been writing a book on how to explain this to the average American, but it's the same toolkit they use in political campaigns. It came from Madison Avenue with advertising and then World War II and, and our science of, of, of anti-Nazi propaganda, the same science was used by Goebbels and others. And a classic example is in World War II, the, the honor system, the Bushido honor system during Emperor Hirohito forbade mm -hmm. people to surrender. They'd rather die than lose face. Absolutely. So saying surrender, the pamphlet said cease resistance. And an analogous technique we would use if we were to employ this kind of thinking in America, certain people, you have to understand their behavioral moral framework, like Jonathan Haidt says, their moral psychology. A lot of people see the mask as a symbol of oppression, and they see not wearing a mask as a symbol of freedom. Now, as dumb as that is, if I want to persuade some of them to wear a mask, what I'm going to do is 
appeal to something else they value. For example, wear a mask, it's a sign of respect. You don't have to wear a mask, quote unquote. Of course, I know you don't have to listen to the government, but you should wear a mask and freedom loving people want to wear masks because it's a sign of respect and family values and Jesus. And of course you wanna wear a mask. You know, we wanna really appeal to something we can identify around because most people have some value system you can engage with productively. Mm. And um, so that's what we try to do. Then I got out of uh, the military, did some uh, worked as a civilian, kind of a whore of war contractor turned DOD civilian. I worked in Afghanistan with an applied uh, social science and anthropology program called Human Terrain System. So we were like the Oprah Winfrey of the war zone, kind of like marriage counselors between brigade combat teams and Afghan culture and tribal leaders. So we'd wear the local attire and go Kevin Costner and like actually sit down with people and try to mitigate conflict and reduce violence. And then I applied that thinking and those skills to build, try to look at our problems here at home. You take a community like Ferguson, the police are not talking to the community. There's decades of systemic uh, oppression and racism. How do you analyze the problem by sitting down, shutting up, listening to the population, mapping out people's grievances, identifying the marginalized groups, letting them create their own map of their own community? That can save lives and mitigate risk, whether it's a multinational corporation working in Africa or South America, or it's police working in Ferguson or in Brooklyn. Understanding the people is the mm -hmm. center of gravity and respecting those people and letting them have a voice, you can stop riot. That is the best tool we have to avoid riots. So I've been trying for the last 10 years to scale up a system where veterans can work with locals and neighborhoods and mitigate risk and empower people. And so and my other focus is countering propaganda, giving people the tools to understand how they're being fucked with, how they're being manipulated across the political spectrum. And how do you reach people? How do you reach people in the heartland? How do you reach people in the Rust Belt through effective communication? So I combine war zone lessons of tribal engagement with academia and social science. So I identify as a social science warrior. So basically social justice, but without any of the fundamentalism, just pure, how do we help people and how do we have the best tools to do it? So, wow, that's a whole lot. I mean, I, I know that I know that you have some things you want to say, Christoph, but I want to just start out really quick by uh, saying that, uh, you know, a lot of what you're talking about, it, it involves, you know, turning around because the reason people believe propaganda is because it tells them something that they want to hear. And, you know, they, they don't want to hear that, you know, um, wearing a mask, for example, is a public health requirement. So what they want to hear is that they're free not to. But my, my, my issue with that is that, you know, what do you do about the people who just still refuse? Because you got something yeah. like this. It's a collective action problem. You could have 5% of people not wearing masks and they could get everybody else sick. So yeah. how do you bridge that gap between, you know, uh, people who've been told what they want to hear, which is that they're free, that this is a symbol of oppression and, uh, uh, you know, versus public health? Yeah. Well, it's a huge, COVID brings a really, a real kind of nonlinear component to this because of the way it spreads and the very um, uh, rapid and hidden way it spreads and the way it exponentially spreads. It creates a kind of risk where there's some people we're just not going to reach. There's limitations to what I call the non-lethal toolkit. So some of what we do overseas, we're trained to, you know, shoot, move, communicate, kick indoors. We're also trained in my case, you know, I speak a number of languages like Arabic, some Farsi, German, Russian, Spanish, et cetera. We can use that non-lethal toolkit as a force multiplier as well, but it has limitations. Some people, were good, they're going to be a walking uh, um, uh, safety hazard and they're going to spread it. 
and I don't have all the answers. That's where I think we need to use something called the OODA loop, which means observe, orient, decide, act. Basically, it's the scientific way of thinking. We say, let's observe what we're seeing. Let's orient ourselves to the problem by constantly updating our beliefs. Let's really try to understand what's going on. Then make the best decision based on, based on risk assessment and cost benefit. Take action, but then we continually look for feedback, measures of effectiveness. Was this effective? Did what, what we did, did it work, did it not work? Why or why not? And as we do that, we're constantly updating our belief system to adapt in a very um, evolutionary fashion. So one policy might be effective at containing it in one city and not in another. And we say, why is that? So we're always trying to update and evolve our beliefs. And I think if people share best practices across the country, it's like a economical bottom-up way to identify what works and what does not work. And I think, and when we talk about policing later, I think the same thing can happen. How do you identify practices that will start riots versus ways to respect the community. So mm-hmm. I, with COVID though, it's really tricky. I honestly don't know. I mean, get people that are within their moral tribe. Like if we could find some evangelicals that'll go on TV or go on, you know, Pat Robert, I think Pat Robertson actually said, wear a freaking mask or something. I don't know what his words were. Um, I may be wrong. If I McConnell is, is on board with masks. What's that? I think- yeah, I think that's really important. I think a couple of things that resonate with me that you just said, John, and I think one of the things is, the, the and this is uh, starkly absent in, 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 in human culture, but certainly American culture, and that is a willingness to update one's beliefs uh, with, with, with changing information. We saw that right early on. There was don't buy masks, right? Let, leave it for the, you know, right? The masks aren't as effective as we thought, or um, leave them for the healthcare workers or whatever, right? Yeah. And now it's like, oh, no, 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 wear masks. And that's because the way we think about things has has evolved. I, just to piggyback a little bit on what you're talking about, though, I, I love the approach that you're talking about. The, the, the approach of, uh, there's an organization that I that I follow called Better Angels that, so that, that I think is-, is I'm aware, yeah. Space. I'm sure you probably are aware of it. And the same space of, of basically trying to get people in the room and find common ground and so if you're able to sort of sell something on the sort of moral, the, the sort of moral foundation upon which X, Y, and Z person sort of like builds their life, and you can sell masks on that basis, then that that sounds like seemed like the most effective approach. But to Sean's point, and this is a huge problem, right? There's gonna be those people on the extremes that you just can't reason with, right? Yeah. That they are just be, and, and 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 most of the time that may not matter because we can overwhelm them politically. But when it right, comes to right. But when it comes to a disease, though, right, right, yeah. a communicable disease, we have a serious problem. So, like, how do we? I don't know. And like you say, there's no easy answers to this. But maybe right. we do need to have more. Like, there the stick has to be there too, not just the carrot, right? The stick has to be there for those right. people who are just beyond reason. And this goes all the way to the top. I mean, this goes to the to the treason aspect. You've got a, an American president who is uh, committing democide, which is uh, which is basically the leader of a country killing his own people. And it's not, it's not just us. It's, it's happening in Brazil. It's happening, you know, possibly in China. We don't, China's so opaque that we have no idea what's really going on there. But our president is absolutely committing democide. He wants to send this, the kids back to school. You know, he's doing all of that. So, you know, we don't ask people permission to uh, have drunk driving laws, right? If somebody is drunk driving drunk, you know, it's like everybody has to comply. It doesn't matter what your belief, it doesn't matter what party you belong to. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or an atheist. You cannot drive drunk. And, and I don't understand why, you know, other than, well, the fact that the, we've got a, a treason party in charge, you know, why that isn't true for all public health uh, uh, questions. Why isn't it just a requirement? 
That's it's an interesting point. I mean, I've always thought that the public health approach, the approach of harm reduction, should be our fundamental paradigm for all our social policies. The drug mm-hmm. war case in point, we have this puritanical history of having a retributional approach to justice, mm-hmm. which I think is archaic and outdated. And then the uh, 70s and, and 80s saw the rise of the fear-based drug war and special interests. And that was a fundamentally evolu- uh, emotion-based policy. To me, that's the modern version of witchcraft or spell casting or sacrificing a chicken in the middle of a fucking village that should be just as discredited if your policy is not based on data-driven evidence-based approaches to reduce harm you should be no more credible than someone going to a witch doctor that that should be the way we shift the the conversation so sure. for the drug war it should be a, a based on what is the what is the best way to reduce harm through public through data-driven approaches the in goal being public health public health meaning how do we identify a problem and reduce the harm in the most effective way? How do we measure it? And adults understand this. In my opinion, this should be basically the adult table and the child's table. If you don't understand this, well, you're not absolutely. Like, the problem is smart people are better at rationalizing bullshit. This speaks to the heart of the COVID problem. The smarter you are, the better you are at doing middle gymnastics to believe what you want to believe because we're evolutionarily hardwired, and you all know this, to to avoid changing our mind and defend our beliefs. The brain doesn't mm-hmm. want to be wrong. So like in the Savannah, we have this, the slow, the fast thinking system to react instinctively to avoid predators. And that carries over into the way we th- are defensive against changing our beliefs. It goes against our thinking brain, which works slower. Daniel Kahneman talks about this. And so, you know, it's a matter of like, you got to go through the emotional brain, the, you know, the, the fast brain first to get the, to get the rational brain. So like the gateway to the, to the mind is through the heart. So most of the time to throw facts at them, they're going to double down. They're mm-hmm. like a boxer. They're going to just, you know, try to block what you're doing. But if you go through to their emotions and identify some common ground, identify shared moral concern, find that political G spot and say, Hey, we're going to, you know, <laughs> political G spot. I love it. What it is. I hate to say it. <laughs> I know like you the cheat it. Code. That's it. This is like the cheat code to a video game. Absolutely. Ideologues on whatever side, ideologues are a video game with a cheat code. You got to find that cheat code and engage it. And it has a lot of, it's not that they're stupid for the, sometimes it is, but a lot of times. <laughs> sometimes it definitely is. Yeah. Oh. There's some dumbasses out there, but a lot of times the biggest people that are big on conspiracies are smart people. They, they have all the architecture in place to argue against it. The more mm-hmm. facts you throw at them, the more they double down, you got to find an emotional entry point. And I think for, you know, the brains evolved that way. So we have to understand like, for countering disinformation, same idea. You know, it, 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 we, we have to have a, a toolkit in place, like a, maybe a mass communications campaign, a Manhattan Project mm-hmm. style um, a means of, of disseminating messages to multiple audiences through mass media, like not a government psyop, but actually citizen-led, privately funded Elon Musk style innovation mm-hmm. that can actually reach people across the spectrum by engaging them at the heart level so then they'll, they'll change their minds slowly. And that's hard to do. It's going to require people in their moral community, in their tribal community, to say, hey, this is disinfo. Here's why. But if you, but disinfo is hard to counter directly. Same thing with, you know, any bullshit belief. It's, it's really Absolutely. hard to just, you know. Well, I, I was going to say it's kind of a threefold problem because what you said is true, that people who are uh, smarter have more cognitive tools to rationalize anything that they want to believe, right? But then there's also, I just read an article today saying that the, the people who don't want to wear masks uh, have, have lower cognitive skills. So maybe on that one thing, that may be, you know. That, yeah, that's true. But, but there's, there's, both things are, can be true at the same time, I think. But there's, yeah. a, third, there's a third factor, and that is that um, we've got um, powerful people who are pushing 
propaganda viewpoints um, that play, use all the techniques that you're talking about. I mean, whether it's whether it's the Russian government, whether it's uh, the Trump campaign, whether it's, you know, uh, a corporate America, fossil fuel, uh, you know, companies, uh, whether it's the Murdochs who are making money off this stuff, Facebook, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg, you've got a lot of powerful people, you know, with a lot of, you know, so if you wanted to do a, a top-down Manhattan Project type of thing, you'd be literally having to fight against all of these giant, yeah. you know, influences. So what do you do? What's the analogy I use, PSYOP, the psychological warfare is basically, it's not good or bad. It's like the force in Star Wars. It's a set mm -hmm. of tools. The problem is most people who've been using it, as you just explained, are Sith. They use it for mm -hmm. malicious, malicious uh, goals, whether it's corporatism, uh, foreign disinformation from China, Iran, or especially Russia, mm -hmm. political mm -hmm. propaganda for, you know, divide and conquer Southern strategy. I mean, just the whole history of propaganda for mm -hmm. the most part. I'm not talking about war zones. I mean, domestically has been malicious. We need a team of Jedi that are able to tap into that same skill set and use mm -hmm. the force for good. And that's, that's the book I'm writing. That's the proposal. And James Carville wrote a, an op-ed about this saying we need a mass communications campaign. And I'm like, I've been saying this for 10 years. We need this. <laughs> we have people who can do it. The problem is getting funding because I'm like, I, I, you know, okay. so I'm working on banging on doors and being like, Hey, we have people who've had tons of experience doing this. We have the skills, we know the playbook, we know the cheat codes. Let yeah. us use this for good. Like a lot of veterans, we want to continue to serve here at home. We don't want to see our own our own country become a war zone. That's the most soul-crushing thing. And that's something uh -huh. we refuse to accept defeat on. Like, I understand we can debate victory in Iraq. We will victory here is non-negotiable. We don't want our country to fail. And we don't want to see, you know, people of color afraid to walk the streets. We don't want to see corporations controlling the meat. Like we basically we want to use our skills for good, not through the military, but as civilians, as citizens, Absolutely. not like Starship Troopers, where you got to be a, I mean, there, there's another, uh, I won't right, get right. Level, but yeah, 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 right, right. A service, a service guarantees citizenship. Yeah. Uh, Do what you like and, to know more. So, and you know, it's a really, you know, I think, uh, also, I wonder what you think about this, John, because you obviously have your head uh, deeply in this. Like what I keep coming back to and something that we've talked about in terms of the radical secular is the idea of sort of like reigniting some sort of uh, some sort of unifying sense of citizenship. When you said when you talked about this idea of uh, the masks and, and, and pitching it as, um, you know, sure, you know, no one's forcing you to do it, but it is something that you're doing for your fellow citizens, right? And and, and yeah. what, what popped in my head right there was like the idea of citizenship, right? And 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 and, and civic responsibility. And 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 like I wonder how we sell that. I mean, certainly, I mean, there's there's certainly an argument to be made in terms of, you know, uh, for example, I'm using this as an example, it's come to came to my head just now. In the South, maybe we stop, maybe the you stop curriculums from from teaching the sort of the 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 lost cause narrative, which right. just fuels yeah. the idea of two different countries, right? Well, and it's yeah. them and it's mm. us. That's right. Go ahead, I was going to say, that, you know, you've got you've got really two completely different ideas of citizenship and you see mm -hmm. uh, Trump appealing to that all the time. You know, I mean, there are people who actually think that, you know, um, the, the monuments coming down or burning the flag or, you know, um, building affordable housing in the suburbs means that their way of life is under attack. I mean, and this is this is this is beyond, way beyond a dog whistle. This is just a dog foghorn. I mean, this is just completely. I use that term. It's one I of my favorite that. terms because. Or, it's, or you can say a dog loudspeaker if you want to use psyop analogies. You have a giant loudspeaker on our Humvees that blasts for you know a long distance. Dog loudspeaker, maybe. Well, the idea the idea that suburbs are under attack. That these that these right. uh, uh, you know alternative policing policies that affordable housing 
that uh, you know, uh, affordable health care, basic income, all of these things will destroy the suburbs because now those people are going to be moving into the suburbs. It's a huge, um, it's a huge block to a shared sense of citizenship that we've yeah. got. You know, some people who are being appealed to in this way from the treasonous guy in the White House. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I feel like the, there's two fun. I, I've always this has really torn me apart. I feel like there's two fundamentally different ideas of what makes America great. And when I say that, I realize America's never been great in every aspect. We're still far behind cool. in certain aspects. I, I don't like totalizing language. I like to say America's great in some ways and still is really terrible and needs to catch up in others. But that aside, there's two different ideas of what makes America or the idea of America great. Mm-hmm. And the kind Sean just described is tribalism, a very tribal identity-based, my inner circle, my in-group versus dehumanizing the out-group. The other view, I think, is based is grounded in ideas mm-hmm. going back to the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason, and there are two undercurrents here, and tell me what you guys think. I've always defined them as two very broad axes. The moral axes are, or the, the axes are basically science and reason and facts and empiricism versus bullshit dogma and closed thinking. The other one is, because um, that's what carried our civilization to where it is, is the arc of scientific thinking and understanding and the whole enlightenment, right? And the other one along with that is humanizing compassion and human dignity and the rights of the individual person. And mm. I don't care what side you're on, if you're taken away from individual dignity, if you are oppressing the human person, you're wrong. I don't care if you're Mao Zedong, if you're right wing, left wing, I don't care what country you're from, what language you speak, if you are going against either of those axes, if you're promoting bullshit that goes against science or you're suppressing individual human rights, you're wrong. Those, that's what makes America great. And by that, we can build a society or to some degree have built a society that's very diverse, has a multitude of people coexisting under the umbrella of, of, of these ideas. There's still lots of problems and gaps, but that's the idea of America. But there's the other idea, the competing narrative that is very, I call it sort of a, like a neo-Darwinian sort of tribalism of my in-group. These are two different ideas of what makes America great. And there's people that become conservatives for these two fundamentally different reasons. There are some intellectual conservatives that really do, whether you disagree with them or not, they, they, they're, they're conservatives because of ideas and beliefs. There are others that are just conservative for emotional reasons of purism and tribalism and in-group, out-group. You know, they're, they're, they're very visceral. They're very emotional. They follow a platform. They don't like, they, they resist change very instinctively. And they, they, they rapidly dehumanize a group that, that is considered outside their circle of inclusion. So they won't bat an eye. Like, a, you know, some conservatives will say, we got to secure our borders and we might have to deport some people. But that breaks my heart. Like, I want everyone to be here. I know people that are Latino or whatever. And I hate to say it, but we might have to do this, but we should minimize it. We should minimize deportations. Whereas others celebrate deportations mm-hmm. and don't even bat an eye when Important someone who's through their entire life is ripped away from their family. That I have no words for that. Like, well, you're American? Really? You're seriously? You're part of my super tribe? Fuck you. Get out. Seriously. You know? Well, this speaks really because all three of us have read uh, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And this really speaks to uh, something that um, is is key. And that is that a lot of people don't think that uh, that the, the values of secularism, science, rationalism, the, the Enlightenment uh, provides a lot of meaning. They look to, um, you know, number one, religion and God as their source of meaning. And uh, that that ties into their social group in their communities. 
And that ties into their larger tribalism because it is, I, I don't think that you can really uh, separate right now uh, the evangelical Christian right from racism and white supremacy in the United States. I, I, I hate, I mean, I'm sorry to make that, you know, generalization, but uh, it, you know, it seems- It's a Venn diagram. What? It's a Venn diagram that's almost a circle if you're talking about exactly. the extreme evangelicals. Yeah. Great point. So, so, so how do you, you know, you're dealing with um, people who literally they're, you know, uh, and, and I'm glad you brought up the compassionate conservatives who, who, you know, uh, who have human connections with, you know, immigrants and people of color and don't want to see these draconian policies. That's, that's great. But there's another uh, subset of these people who, you know, the, the idea, the idea of a multicultural society is just offensive to them. And not only is it offensive, they, they say multicultural societies don't work. They lack social cohesion. There's no way to establish common meaning. And we know that's false because we actually have had a multicultural society in the United States for a very long time. And it has worked much better than it's working now. And the difference is the messaging coming from the top and from the, the right wing. Yeah. Well, they, they feel, I feel like they think that they, it's about framing. They think of multiculturalism as being devoid of any shared culture or any mm -hmm. underlying values. And I agree. That's not a good idea. I would say we are a nation of many cultures. We do have some core values and some core things that ties together, but people can also, they can identify proudly as Americans and they can identify as wherever they're from and celebrate that through their music, through their cuisine, and they can fuse it together and it could be a, a beautiful fusion of different cultures, it doesn't lack a core set of narratives and ideals. I've met some of the most patriotic Americans I know, people I'd sooner drink a beer with than most anyone, are people from the Middle East, from Iran, from Saudi Arabia, from countries like that. They value freedom more than the vast majority of white Americans I've ever met, aside mm -hmm. from like your you know special operations or your military, right? Like, some a lot of immigrants are the most freedom-loving people you'll ever meet from all countries, right? And so there is a shared set of values and cohesion. There is an overarching narrative for America, but there's also a lot of diverse cultures and a lot of places see different music and food and stories and, and history. That's awesome. And I think communicating it that way might be helpful. It's like, yeah, no, we're not devoid of culture. There is American culture, but there's many American cultures. And sure. they under a single narrative and we need to try to make that narrative more true by fighting for equality that, that would be my you know I, I think that's right I think that's you know and I'm like as I'm hearing you guys talk and, and I and you know there are is clearly a competing uh competing ideas of what America is what America stands for um and and and, and it's no secret right uh, because clearly right New York City is right over there you're in it right now and there is a multicultural thing going on there right but everyone also identifies as New Yorkers and there and, and yeah. there's a whole idea of what a New Yorker is right and, yeah. and that includes like you know the most diverse borough Queens right that that includes the wealthy people in Manhattan that require that that, that includes the poor black people in um, in, in, uh, up in the Bronx, like it, it all, they're all New York. They all have very different cultures, but they're all yeah. New York. And, and so that is something that's, that's attainable. The question is, how do we attain that? And, and so what, uh, what comes, like the, the, the fundamental barriers that, 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 I, I, that I see to that are, and I, and I just I mentioned this earlier, um, you know, this sort of the narrative of the, of the, of the, the rebel narrative, the rural versus uh, urban narrative, right? So and, and I think we have to end up getting down to like the nitty gritty and frankly, at the school board level of changing how 
kids are sort of indoctrinated into, because right, that is where you learn how to become a citizen, right? Yeah. That's where you learn civics. And if you learned back then that the, that, that the South was a state's rights issue, that, that the Civil War was a state's right. rights issue, right? And that the Northern people are a bunch of aggressors try, and, and, and elites. I mean, that feeds right into a narrative that, that you grow up. And by the way, you're much likely not to go to college. You're most likely not to go to graduate school. So you're not going to get that exposure. You're going to stay yeah. in that small town, work at a gas station, and 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 and, and then the, the the problem continues to, to continues to to, to Dude, I'm from so I'm from Georgia. I grew up in Atlanta, but I also went to high school in the countryside. I have I can interchange my accent across a, a number of ranges. <laughs> There are gentlemanly ways of talking, whether we're talking about Savannah, Georgia, or Kevin Spacey and uh, House of Cards. And we're like, hey, you tell me what, motherfucker. You try to come for my guns. I got something for you. I don't want more, more Barack Hussein Obama. So I understand the South. We need to counter that narrative that, that you just described. We need to counter that narrative in a grassroots way in the South. And there are ways mm-hmm. to do that. There really are. And liberals, most liberals, y'all are exceptions. Most liberals have no clue how to do that. And that's understandable. But there are ways to do it. But you're right. Um, speaking as a Southerner, um, the idea that Southern identity and pride and meaning has to be anchored to the Confederacy is complete bullshit. The Confederacy has a shorter shelf life than fucking Glee or one of those fucking shows. <laughs> Well, this is brilliant, though. This is actually brilliant from the standpoint of the Trump campaign, right? Because what they've done is they've taken the places in the country where you've got successful, successful multiculturalism. You've got, you know, widespread public education in the big cities. You know, and you've got people who who accept a more shared uh, notion of, of America, who understand what the Civil War was about slavery, who don't who aren't into this whole lost cause thing. And, you know, you, they've now split them up. They're driving a wedge in between uh, these these two worlds. And. You know, he the, the the parts of America that are supportive of Trump are largely the parts that are still majority white. Some of these mm-hmm. towns, you know, you might, you know, the, 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 I think what is the, the African-American population is, what, 12 percent of the country. But in some of these rural counties, there might be one percent or even yeah, less. like almost zero, almost zero. So, you know, they, they, it's, it's a really good strategy if you are trying to become the last president of the Confederacy or the next president of the Confederacy is to, <laughs> To, to not only to, to drive this wedge, but also to defund, condemn, and, and, and disparage uh, uh, the cities and, and these places where people are living together, because that is expressly against what the Confederacy yeah. stood for. The funny thing is more people, like I said, if, if you know, there's something about New York that all Americans can identify with, no matter where culture we're from, if the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man comes walking through our city, we're all New Yorkers and we're all Americans. And average New Yorkers, I'm serious, average fucking Oh, you're New right, Yorkers, you're right. Yeah, no, we are the, one of the most patriotic cities in the world. We, we are like New Yorkers are, yes, we're, there's, I, I say we, I'm an adopted New Yorker. I moved here after Afghanistan. I've been here about eight years, but I'm, you know. There's a lot of assholes here. I get it. I'm an asshole whenever I'm riding, whenever I'm riding the subway and I don't want to listen to people. Other than that, I'm a nice guy. But the point is, there's a, old school New Yorkers that were born and raised here have more in common with conservative heartland Americans when it comes to certain things. When they talk about taxes, the taxes here are oppressive. And if liberals and conservatives agree on this, the taxes here for the working class are terrible. The corruption is terrible. There's so many problems. And if you were having a conversation with a New Yorker and you turn their accent into the, you went from like my cousin Vinny to talking like, you know, talking like a hill, you know, good old boy down in down South in Georgia somewhere. If you just interchange the accent and had a conversation with a New Yorker and you're a hardcore conservative from Georgia, you would think he's part of your tribe. You would think he's one of you. 
there's so much shared concerns and frustrations they have. So this idea that New York is like an elite liberal progressive, it is liberal, very socially liberal. We have the go topless parade, guys and girls walk with no shirt on. I, I've done this for purely altruistic reasons. And by the way, like we are very socially <laughs> liberal, right? But when it comes to like taxes, we're angry. We're like, screw Absolutely. you, you know? So, or Bill de Blasio, everybody hates Bill de Blasio. Right? I mean, I'm thinking of like, <laughs> and I, I've been so busy. I've never even paid attention to all that, but yeah, that's, the, the, you're right. Like we need to get more New Yorkers talking to, uh, you know, people down south, they, they drink a beer together any day of the week. Most Americans are not this divided on most things. If I they just talk, right. like the way we're talking out is a backstory to listeners. Sean and I have had years of like friendly, frenemy arguing and heated, kind of heated discussions on Facebook. Yeah. As soon as, as yeah. soon as I saw your face and saw you talking and on a video, I had zero, zero negative emotion, zero anxiety, zero, nothing. I'm like, Oh, cool. I could smoke a joint with this guy if it wasn't still in the army reserves, you know, <laughs> not that I've ever done any drugs in my life. Of course, no. was, you know, never, um, but never. So Just, yeah, no. that, that kind of humanizing conversation needs to happen to break yeah. down those stereotypes. That to me is counter propaganda. That is a way to develop a counter narrative. And I think like the Lincoln project or the compilation of ex Trump voters is a mm-hmm. way to take people from these different tribes and have them, uh, talk to each other, have them give their testimonies to put a face to it. You know what would happen? I think organically, if Americans were just able to have these conversations uh, independently um, over time, this, this polarization would, would flatten out. It would soften. It would, it would, it would become more muted, but we have these, uh, the incitement occurring on a daily basis. Every Tucker Carlson episode, every Laura Ingram episode, every Sean Hannity episode, uh, Rush Limbaugh, all these people. And then and that's not even to talk about the the lunatics on the alt-right. You know, yeah. uh, uh, they are inciting this war uh, uh, constantly, you know, and, and and you hear this all the time. I mean, this this thing that I brought up about multicultural societies don't work is is a big, huge talking point, you know. And what they're basically saying is that this isn't this isn't a failure. It's like you shouldn't even try. We, we haven't tried and failed. We, we should just not try we should, you know, separate the countries of the world should be separate nations. Uh, people should go to their own corners and that's how we should live. And that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a prescription for failure, but this is right. what people are being told on a daily basis. I think that's really a critical point, especially I think I think we can't talk enough about the role of media in general, but particular uh, particularly uh, conservative media. Right. And because right, because like guys like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and uh, what was a real asshole uh, uh, before on Fox? I can't remember his name now, but Uh, Bill um, O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly, I mean, the king of all assholes, but like, right, but you know, yeah. but like, my, my, but those guys, they make a ton of money and I get that. And, and they're, and they're, and that's, and that's a lot of why they do it, but they're also just like big headed egoists, right. And just pieces of garbage. But what, what they're doing every day is real damage. And, 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 and the, the and the, the thrust behind it ultimately is capitalism, right? Like ultimately it's money, right. That, cause like, that's why Fox news exists, right. They know that they, just like you're saying, John, they know exactly how to tap into the emotional into the emotional brain like that is their entire business model right so the question is like and this goes to your point earlier uh sean the importance of having the stick in in terms of making sure that how do we can we perhaps from a governmental perspective 
tamp down some of that sort of, you know, uh, the, the, the fairness doctrine, right? These sort of ideas that used to exist in media. Can we, is that something we can marshal to try and, and to try and tamp down some of, so some of that negative impact, I wonder? I, I wish that that was the case. I mean, we get a, you get immediately into the free speech conversation, which is just goes nowhere because there's not a single person who supports free speech who doesn't have some idea of some some kind of speech that they don't want out there. Yeah, there's not every, there's not one person, you know, and anybody who says that they want absolutely free speech is a hypocrite. Right. And there's no absolutist. You're right. There's no, you know. So it just seems like, um, you know, if, if the, the probably most destructive thing is the blurring of news and entertainment, um, because yeah. these commentaries, you know, would have been previously relegated to opinion section, you know, or whatever, labeled as commentary. But now these commentary shows are on Fox News and, you know, they're some of the most popular shows. The, actual Fox, the Fox News um, uh, uh, program is fairly factual. It's all these other opinion shows and their website that really uh, take them over into the, into the, you know, the realm of destructive propaganda. Well, like, yeah, I think that's right. Go ahead. Go ahead, John. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say it's like a funnel where the, there's algorithms that will filter you from like filter you beliefs you want to hear and expose you to things you want to steady diet of things you want to hear. And then they'll funnel you through similar content. So you go from whatever you're watching to Breitbart to it exposes you to a false universe, mm-hmm. this moral matrix of, delu- of, of like disproportionately exposing you to fringes. So if you're like a conservative or just anyone, you're going to see the most crazy examples of extreme feminism or like a fake Russian troll video of a woman pouring bleach on men, you know, mm-hmm. saying this is what feminists are. Well, are there some feminists that do that? Yeah, like a very tiny microscopic percentage. This was Russian propaganda. It was fake news. But when you're constantly filtered that content, you're funneled into this false universe. Mm-hmm. So a chapter of my book is called The Green Pill. It's not red pill, blue pill. The green pill is about creating a space where we can talk to people and in a healthy way and debunk bullshit. If you're a conservative, talk to other conservatives, but they can steer you out of the rabbit hole and have a reasonable conversation. And that's, right. that's anyway, I was going to, that's all I was going to say. I didn't want to like, yeah. Oh no, not at all. I think that's amazing. I mean, it's, it sounds like you're doing like, I, I can't wait for this book. I mean, it sounds yeah. like uh, right up my alley because I need you- a war game. It. I need to like run some of it by you guys because I strengthen my own views by, by credit, by hearing criticism. It's that whole OODA loop. So like Sean over the years has had good and a lot of people on the left and to some degree other, you know, shades have, have helped me refine my views. Cause like for the most part, and I have ego, I'm not perfect, but for the most part, if I'm wrong, I'll be like, yeah, I changed my mind. Like, Absolutely. That, that should be the new sexy and cool. Like that's yeah. Like, just try, like you. trying to get to truth. I try. Yeah. I have these arguments with people all the time. This idea of like, no, I don't want to win this argument. I want to get exactly to the truth. Well, and yeah, a- of course I have ego, and of course part of me just wants to win. But ultimately, if you tell me something, and especially if I react strongly to it, odds are I'm going to leave that conversation and think about it. Yeah. And, I'll, and then I'll be like, wait a second. You know what? I really got to change this. I got to tweak my views a little bit on this sort of issue. Yeah. Let me ask you guys, have you guys ever had like people um, on the right or the center or, or the left that have, you know, come back to one of these like spaces on social media after they're dogpiled and said, you know what, guys, I was wrong on this thing. And hopefully when that happens, they'll get embraced with open arms and like, all right, hey, cool. Glad you changed your mind. 
let's continue to talk instead of being like, yeah, you were wrong. You suck. That will <laughs> well, this is, people further down the rabbit hole. This is something that this is something, first of all, generally, no, people change their minds in private and, and they don't change their minds in public. Uh, but there's also, uh, I've been having this conversation with some of my uh, friends on the left uh, about this because some of the never Trumpers, you know, the Lincoln project has been criticized, you know, uh, from, from the left. And some of the never Trumpers have been criticized. It's like, well, you, you know, this is all your fault. Like you guys voted this guy in. What the fuck's wrong with you? You know, uh, how do you want, you want us to forgive you now? No way. You know, and I've just been saying, hey, repentance is always welcome. And I don't, the, the, the word repentance is not a religious term. It just means rethinking your position. Yeah. If these people were neuron for neuron, not to go into free will, but if these people were hardwired with the same upbringing and the same brain, they would also be the same people. People don't have right. the free will they think they do. Have some goddamn humility and be more compassionate. You're not that good. If you were born in 1850, you would probably be silent on lynchings. Most people. Yes. Oh, my God. You're nailing it. Yeah. These pseudo woke motherfuckers. Like, I'm all about being woke for real, but realize, have some humility. Realize you are woke because of the sacrifices and the ideas that came before you. And you happen to be lucky enough to be born into the age of fucking TikTok. So stop get your get off your arrogant ass. <laughs> have some humility and learn. Like, and my thing about like teaching civics and critical thinking in public schools, K through 12, I understand like so important. Like, like, you know, we need yeah. to, I don't want revisionist history. I don't want ideological history. Exactly. I just want history. I yep. don't want, I want the good, bad, and the ugly. I want all of it. I don't want left or right indoctrination. Just give exactly. us everything. Exactly. And well, and there's, there's one way that woke people, like you said, you know, that's a very interesting point about people, uh, you know, being silent on lynching because that was just the background of noise of the way things were. Well, yeah. we have a similar situation going on today and all of us need to be humble because, for example, we all use, um, products that come from places that have slave labor. We all eat food that is being picked by people who are making $2 an hour. If they're lucky, you know, living in, in, in shacks, you know, that they come here, migrant workers, they, they come here and they're, they're in horrible conditions. I mean, conditions, we, we, you know, it's practically like a prison camp, right? And we're eating that produce every day. So, you know, there's embodied slavery, there's embodied uh, oppression and embodied murder in so much of, of, of commerce in the world. You know, and it's like, this is not to make people yeah. feel bad about going to the grocery store. Not at all. What I'm just saying is that um, when, we, when you have such systemic issues, there's a there's a tendency in the human mind to uh, suppress the, the, you know, to distance oneself from the actual consequences that when you pull out your dollars, you know, you, and you put down your dollars on a table that do, those dollars funnel into the system that causes oppression. Right. This is so important, man. This is such an important issue because it's, it's, it's about society evolving. Right. And sort of evolving over time. Right. So I think about I, I've had conversations with people because I talk about talk to people about race a lot. And I and and uh, um, and, you know, I and, 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 and white people today don't want no one wants to think of themselves as a racist. Right. No one ever thought of themselves as a racist. Right. Like everyone thinks they're not. And and, yeah. and 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 they really aren't certainly by but but like I look back to say the nineties, right? When I was I grew up in an environment where I was the only black person, right? And in the nineties, and the things that I heard in the nineties are just not acceptable today, right? Like, right, and, and I look back at them now and I and and you know, and I say to myself, like, how is I okay with that? Right? And then like, how are my close friends okay with that? Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah. and I'm all and, 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 and okay because we evolve, but 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 the, the denial is what kills me that that like the idea that like oh no 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 I, I I I'm not like racism as like as like a as a moral failing as opposed to something that you're just not 
a personal moral failing as opposed to a systemic problem that gets better over time. But yeah. the new problems, new problems come to the front, to, to, to the fore over time as well. And we have to be willing to confront those as they come up, adjust our views, as we've been saying over and over again throughout yeah. this conversation. It's a question of psychology. How do we frame this in a way that people are not going to be resistive? Where they're going to be resistive, it's going to be painful. But how do you reframe it? And how do you understand mm -hmm. why they're so resistive? Well, for a lot of people, it's an issue of like the word white fragility is really a pseudo scientific word. I understand the word. I get, you know, what it is. It's real. But it, what it really is, for the most part, is cognitive dissonance. Absolutely. And the huh. average person doesn't need to know all the lingo. But we have to ground this in some empirical analysis. Why are people resistive? How do we change their minds? And I think for a lot of people, a lot of these, a lot of white people, it's a matter of, it's, it's an anxiety and a fear. And for people on the left too, it's anxiety and fear. They're so scared of being bigots. If you're a leftist, you're going to lash out and join one of these cancel mobs for the wrong reasons. And if you're on the, if you're not a leftist, your anxiety is going to get you to double down and be a denier of, of, of white fragility or white supremacy, right? Exactly. And it's a mental health psychology issue. Consult the science books, and then you can deliver your message and you can incorporate the so you know the social justice stuff. But the framework should be understanding the human mind. It starts and stops yes. with psychology. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I can you know I'm, I'm a bad example. Like I don't give a shit. I, the idea of white guilt or white pride to me is fucking stupid. But for a lot of people, it's real. And I get that. Um, we have to understand why people feel anxiety, why they feel this way. For a lot of people, when they hear racism, they think, you know, hood wears. Exactly. If you don't oh. know the terminology. Of course, they're going to resist that. That's not white fragility. That's just like misunderstanding. Then if you explain <laughs> to them, no, it's what we mean by racism is that you are brought, everyone's born with certain biases and you're, you know, you're, you've lent you know, you, you've you've often been part of the system. You're benefiting from it. You've had biases. Just it's okay to have that. It's okay. Exactly. It's okay. That's what I want to say. I want to be like, it's okay. Yeah. You're just recognize it. It's not personal, man. Yeah. Exactly. Like those toxic people on Twitter that give that, that that saturate the message. So all they see are the toxic voices. But that's a small percentage. So they're not hearing you guys. And if they were exposed to more of you guys, they'd be open to it. And that's where you need to create the green pill spaces. The exchange sure. where they can really hear that message. That's how you draw people out of Gavin McGinnis's Batcave in the fucking yeah. pipeline. <laughs> well, I, I, I often, I try to reframe this because, you know, I've been accused, I, anytime I get on with anybody who's conservative at all and I start talking about race, you know, they're like, oh, you know, you're, you know, you're, you, you have your white liberal guilt and you're just as much of a problem. You know, you went to university, you're elite, you know, you don't, this doesn't affect yeah. you, you're a hypocrite, blah, blah, blah. I say, no, I, I, just, I don't have to apologize at all for my whiteness, okay? I don't, I, don't have to, I don't feel bad about it. I'm not guilty. What I am is embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that people who look like me, uh, people who I'm going to be judged by their actions because w white people are judged as a race just like any other race is judged, right? So I'm going to yeah. be judged for the actions of, of white racists, who, you know, the, uh, you know, from, from the Karens all the way on down, you know, to, to yeah. videos and everything else like that. It's like somebody sees me walking down the street and they're going to think that's the way I feel. And I don't feel that way. And that's embarrassing. Right. Yeah. Sean, I just want to say, if I was a Homeland security guy and I saw you and your, uh, um, your military haircut and your glasses, I would immediately have a flashback to falling down with Michael Douglas and I would detain you very quickly. So don't feel too bad. I would profile you just like anyone else. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Like, I'm serious, man. You look like, I was thinking like a, like a, like 
Tim Robbins from fucking that Jeff Bridges movie, The Terrorist uh, Arlington Road or something. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm fucking with you. I'm fucking with you. Yeah, but no, yeah, seriously, yeah. Like, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, but but I get it. Like, right? Everybody everybody draws conclusions when they see you know somebody. Yeah. Like, if I took my glasses off. Suddenly, I have I have a totally different look. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wearing glasses, you you appear. You know, people think that you're educated or more educated or whatever. There's right. a stereotype there. You know, so back on and all of a I'm a I'm a glasses wearing. You know. Uh, intellectual liberal elite whatever you know right yeah. right you, so, you mentioned this like you, we've been talking about this a lot but you know it I, I think it's i think it's really really important and and, and i try to talk about this uh, like a friend of mine um won't mention his name is like going through like a lot of difficulty with um with depression and with some drugs and stuff like that and you know and uh you know and, and as a person i mean and I'm, I'm very open to say that i've done drugs before but um and and in fact have done too many drugs before and and and, and i'm a person who's had to like re, redo my life more than once right and you know the thing that's really changed my life more than anything else is learning how my mind works right learning that sort of the basic sort of evolutionary psychology and why yeah. i do what i do and like and and of course reasoning just sort of learn like critical reasoning and yeah. That is what is just so lost. And like, you know, so when you get like a, a, a fragile white person or whatever, you know, like I want to, I want to grab them and be like, look, man, like, like most of what you're doing is automatic anyway. So like the idea that you write, like most of what you do every day is automatic. And you yeah. have no choice in the matter. So like, stop taking yourself so goddamn seriously. It's okay that you have biases. Yeah. Stop trying to pretend you don't because that's the problem, right? It's not the biases that are the problem. If we, have, if we understand what the biases are, then we can actually start to work with those and, and, and we can green pill this situation, right? We can green pill this. We can come up with real solutions. But if, but if we're still in this denial of this idea that like the Ku Klux Klanner is what racism is, then we will get nowhere, and not even just racism, on any topic, any topic that includes human biases, which of course is yeah. every topic. That, that's beautiful, man. I, I, on a personal level, like on a personal note, I came to that that deeper feeling when I was in Afghanistan and I saw some of the most horrific acts of oh, wow. barbarism coinciding with one of the most beautiful cultures and people I've ever met, the most hospitable, honorable people alongside some of the most dishonorable things I've ever seen. And I, for, it took me like six months, even as someone who understood culture and anthropology in Afghanistan, who was well-trained and spoke far, some Farsi and some Pashto. I, I, it still took me months to really resolve some of this. And sure. evolutionary psychology in the most pure sense made me understood there's a common thread of humanity and there's unconscious survival reasoning that ties us together as humans and that makes us human that was so edifying and beautiful and that to me was like a big burden being lifted that showed that between a suicide bomber and a suburban housewife and a suburb you know or a suburban racist or whoever there's so much common commonalities that drive behaviors beneath the veil of, of cultural differences, we're all human. And this allows us to be more humble. If we were in Afghanistan, if I was born in the Af- villages I've been to in the Afpak border, I would probably be acting just like them. I'd be hustling for weapons, smuggling opium to survive. I'd be worried that my son or daughter couldn't, you know, my son didn't, couldn't afford to get married. I'd lose face. I'd be tempted to go plant that IED. As bad as that is, if you were them, you would probably be feeling the same way they feel. Exactly. And, and mm. evolution, that, that, that pure understanding of human behavior, apart from the bullshit versions of it, but the real understanding of human behavior strips this down and is so edifying and beautiful. And it's, it's like a sobering way 
to realize why people are the way they are. Like you listen to Daryl Davis's talk on de-radicalizing Klansmen. After a few conversations, some of these people, they, they start the process of de-radicalizing. I'm like, right. that's amazing. Unbelievable. Really well, and that emphasis on, on culture, you know, yeah. every, everybody is oriented toward culture, you know, and, and, and very few people are oriented towards the essential human elements. What I really liked was uh, in the back of the blank slate, I believe, uh, yeah. if I remember correctly, there is a list of human universals. It talks about mm-hmm. behaviors that are common to every culture. And uh, it's, it's exactly speaking to what you're saying is that, you know, the, the, the tribal honor of a guy who, you know, is, is worried that he can't afford uh, uh, to pay for the wedding, you know, is very similar to the tribal honor of somebody, you know, uh, who is a white person who is afraid of losing their privileged position in society. It's like they're, 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 they're seeing something where, you know, they're going to lose face and losing face is directly tied in with the, uh, uh, fitness for reproduction, right? Because if you're if you're embarrassed, if you if somebody is is uh, insulting you, or you know, this is why people people you know they 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 fight uh, if they're insulted because that it, it's decreasing their reputation and uh, their ability, therefore, to reproduce. So it becomes very very highly tied in with our our, our survival instinct. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's Absolutely. so. True. Yeah, this is great. This is a great conversation. Go ahead. Well, it's like an example, a funny example. It's like when you're if you're in Applebee's and you see, you know, Joan Rambo and her army of Karen rebels walk in and you're like, <laughs> oh, fuck, you know, but at the same time, maybe maybe they're just a bunch of old middle middle aged white women. And maybe they're not Karen's. I've met women that look like a Karen, but they're like the anti Karen. I'm like, that's sure. awesome. But if you stereotype her as a Karen, she might turn into one because of the self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like the uh, the Othello in Behavioral Deception when the FBI teaches these techniques, which were also useful in war zones. When like a suspect is being interrogated or if you're talking to someone out in the mountains of whatever, and you look at them like they're guilty, they're going to act guilty. This is a big thing with police reform. If you're like, hey, son, what are you doing walking around? And you use the word son and it's a black 16-year-old and he's been given the talk. He's going to he's gonna look guilty because he's automatically thinking this is how he's seeing me. And by trying not to look that way, he's going to look that way. So mm-hmm. if you're like stereotyped as, as somebody, you're going to start to look, uh, you're going to be apprehensive and they're going to see that as confirmation that you're guilty. And this causes a vicious cycle, whether it's, you know, people on Twitter, if someone comes out with a camera, once again, I'm all about exposing people with a camera if they're really like the real racist. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> the iPhone is a good weapon. But like, we need to make sure it's not, a, they're not, you know, reacting to the, by being afraid that they're being stereotyped. We need to give people the space to explain themselves. And, you know, we need to separate people that are not real Karens from actual Karens and identify the behavior and say, look, if you are a Karen, we're not trying to ruin your life. Just self-examine and try to like not be this person. Man. You know, right. Right. That's the key you know? to behavior, you know, and the, the fact is, is that uh, only the bad videos go viral. So nobody who's not behaving badly has to worry about a camera, right? That's, that's, it goes for cops. That goes for citizens or whatever. If you're not behaving badly, what's your, what's your issue? You know, <laughs> if yeah. there, there may, yeah, there may right. be exceptions to that rule, but overall, I, I agree. I mean, if there are exceptions to that rule, I think we have a responsibility to say, hey, this was a false. It's like stolen valor. Mm-hmm. Most stolen valor videos are real. Most of the time when veterans and they always hold the camera fucking the wrong way. But beyond that, they usually. <laughs> yeah, they out the fucking, you know, These are so funny. Sometimes these people have mental health issues and I feel bad that they're, you know, on camera. They think yeah. they're 
CIA jet pilot, Navy SEAL. I'm like, that guy has mental health issues. But some are just trying to get laid and get a free cup of coffee, whatever. Most of those videos, they're real stolen valor people. Occasionally, they'll misfire. But as soon as that happens, the veterans community will say, that was that was a mistake, bad move. Right. We mm-hmm. redact this. This person's fine. Mm-hmm. Everything's cool. That should happen wow. with cancel culture. It's like, hey, if there's a misfire, just own it. You know, like that yeah, girl, exactly. you know, this girl working at uh, Chipotle and um, it turned I, it's to my best of my knowledge. It turned out she was not in the wrong. She almost had her life ruined. Then they published an article saying, actually, she was not wrong. And now she's OK. That needs to be the process. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't ever. Exp- I mean, it's unavoidable. Like people are going to be exposed. People are. Gonna, yeah, exactly. Just got to figure um, out a way to make it work. Something that you said earlier, John, that really resonated with me, and I think it might be an interesting transition here, um, and that is, um, you mentioned, uh, you know, if I were, if you were in Afghanistan, the mountains of Afghanistan, in the tiny village, you know, blah, 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 you, like, you know, and all the reasons that you mentioned, a suicide, uh, like, like, planting an IED might seem like a good idea. Now, um, and I feel, and I think this, I think similarly about this all the time in terms of um, uh, people of color in, uh, in, in, you know, in poor neighborhoods, selling drugs, doing drugs, um, just generally acting, behaving in a way that is not sort of uh, mainstream, whatever that might be, right? There's a lot of different ways. But um, I, but I, I found, I found especially, again, I, I, I frequently uh, draw on my experience growing up just because it was such a, it's such a, I don't know, a visceral experience in terms of being, um, being the only person of color in my environment, like really the only one in my environment. So, you know, I, I you know, so I remember listening to how people talked about those ghetto people, right. And like all this sort of like this terminology and, 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 and even at that time, I think I even would pile on in some extent. Um, but now when I look, look at this, it's like, well, this is, if I were in that environment, if I had the same neurons, right. If I had been, if I had grown up in, in, in that level of poverty, um, you know, right. How would I be behaving? And this goes into like, uh, Sean knows how, how I, uh, you know, go on the just world, uh, ju- just world fallacy kick. Uh, my, my, my personal blog is called the just words fallacy because I think oh, it's, nice. so, I, I think it's so critical. Um, because I think that's such a critical issue here, right? Because like, right on the right, particularly on the right, but also on the left, this idea that like, right, that everyone is where they should be because of their behavior or because of what they, and that if I were in that situation, I would be different, right? And I think that is a lie. And this, I wanna, I think this is a good segue because of the rioting. Uh, Why do they, why do they burn down their own, their own, uh, burn down their own neighborhoods, right? That's something that they say on the right all the time. And again, what, how do you know, how do I know how I would behave if I were in that situation? And, uh, you yeah. know, and I think it's an interesting maybe segue into the Portland, Portland, uh, the Portland debacle. But, um, but go ahead. Well, I've been working. So when I got back from Afghanistan, I started working with the Red Hook community after Hurricane Sandy. Red Hook, Brooklyn is a beautiful neighborhood on the waterfront, mm-hmm. Valentino Pier, Statue of Liberty. It's partly split yeah. between an up and coming area. I'd say predominantly white, but it's a, you know, it's a... Um, more a little more affluent area and then there's predominantly black and latino housing projects and it's a you know it's got a lot of history uh across different italian irish and also uh, also black and hispanic but it basically is divided between two halves and it has a lot of crossover it's a beautiful neighborhood people know each other um but what i when i started getting involved here doing my project of like mapping the neighborhood and using my skills from overseas with civil affairs type stuff mapping villages I would work with the community and, and try to identify their own voices and give, give them a platform to like 
put their concerns into a greater map of the neighborhood. And in doing this, the first like few months was me. This is when I really learned what it means to be, if people use the word ally, that word gets thrown around so much as mm-hmm. But basically, I had to learn this. It involves shutting up and listening. Really does, honestly. First few months was mostly I'd explain what I do. Beyond that, I would only lay out everyone England's trust is by listening to them and really listening and being humble. And in doing that, I learned the very thing you're saying. Like I, I've had friends that have lived through the crack uh, cocaine, uh, the crack epidemic. You know, when Red Hook was so dangerous, it was like La Perla in Puerto Rico, but even worse. I mean, it was like, right. I was, well, I'd be more safe dropping me off anywhere in Afghanistan than Red Hook used to be in the 70s. You, There's only one way in and out, or, you know, you, you're fucked if you're there after a certain hour. <laughs> yeah. And these people lived through that. I had a buddy, uh, a guy named Wally, really good friend of mine, um, lived through, a, you know, Vietnam veteran. Uh, obviously, he was, he was black, and he grew up there, or at least he, he lived through so much of this. And him and a bunch of other people told me a lot about this. And he, he, he mentioned after Martin Luther King was assassinated, people wanted to burn down their neighborhood, but they didn't. People were responsible enough to say, you know, they, they essentially said, no, we're not going to do this. But it takes exceptional acts, afford, you know, average people, regardless of skin color, if you're in certain conditions, you're going to do terrible things. It doesn't mean it's good. I'm against all forms of like, you know, burning down a neighborhood, writing that's bad. But I've seen this all over the world. Like mm-hmm. this, this, these are average people doing bad things, not because they're bad, but because they're in extraordinary circumstances. People don't understand that. They think only bad people are racist or only bad exactly. people burn down their neighborhood. They're average yeah. people. Most I, Nazis, most Nazis were ordinary people. Guess no. what? Your ordinary oh. woke ass probably would have been a Nazi. Yeah. Wenn du in Deutschland in der the von der Zweiten Weltkrieg Deutsch gesprochen hast, würdest du eine Nazi sein? So uh, <laughs> some German, you know, like if you were a freaking German, you would have been like on the wrong side of an Indiana Jones movie. I'm sorry to say it. <laughs> Don't take it I personally. It. It's human nature. The well, wrong side of a human <laughs> Indiana yeah, Jones movie. The Ark of the Covenant would have come for your ass, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> this goes back a little bit to... Uh, uh, the conversation you and I were having, John, on Facebook, and that has to do with the various types of messaging. And I maintain that regardless of how we feel about rioting or burning down your own neighborhood, whatever it is, that rioting is essentially a message. You know, it's a message to uh, the leadership of society, whatever you want to call it, you know, whether it's government, whether it's corporate, whatever it is, it's like, we're not, this is not acceptable. We're not putting up with this. And I think that messaging can coexist with, uh, you know, saner, more rational uh, discourse. And, you know, I think my main objection, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying in terms of counterinsurgency and, and all the work that you've done, which is which is, sounds amazing. And I want to know more about it and I want to read the book. OK, but um, I don't think that there's necessarily a contradiction between, uh, you know, parliamentary politics, electoral politics. And on the other hand, you know, uh, uh, when when it comes time where, where there's there's a conflagration that takes place based on a George Floyd or a Rodney King or, or whatever the situation is, that's a message that is is a part of the conversation. And it's like, um, yeah. even, even, though, even though there are many groups who go out there in the street with full intentions of protesting peacefully, you're going to get 1%. All it takes are these seeds of violence. You know, uh, somebody comes out with a hammer, breaks a window, somebody else sets a fire, and pretty soon the streets are, uh, everything's, everything's ablaze. So, yeah. How, how do you, I mean, don't you think that there's a, that there's a, a sort of coexistence between these various methods of, of protest? 
Yeah, Great that's thing. a really that's a that's an incredibly interesting question. I've been uh, the last two months have been deep deeply pondering. And after Ferguson was what really got me thinking about that because you take I mean basically from a counterinsurgency perspective, there, you have to recognize that the only the only reliable way to set conditions to prevent this kind of instability and violence is to address root concerns, address the grievances. All the militarized responses in the world, if you roll into these different cities with that, with striker vehicles and the National Guard is, is competent, you know, our military is trained as they are. We're not, I guarantee you, I'm one of like most people, most soldiers are not going to understand how to operate in an American city. They're not trained to, it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very messy and very difficult. Watch the movie, The Siege with Denzel and Bruce Willis. So we, our military is not equipped. That's a good one, that movie. It is, absolutely. Yeah. I quote a lot of word for word. It's fucking amazing. But yeah. we're, we're <laughs> operating in American cities this way. So here's the thing. We use the analogy called whack-a-mole. So we learn from our mistakes. If you're listening to this and you're one of our leaders and you, you know, yes, I understand we need a National Guard. We need to respond and sometimes put down violence. But you want to avoid militarized responses as much as possible. Even if you put down an insurgency or an uprising in one city, it's going to go viral and it's going to materialize in another city. And you're going to play a game we've played for years in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's called whack-a-mole. It doesn't fucking work. You will lose. I promise you. I don't care how tough-talking you are as a politician. You will lose this game. We are better at this than you are. Don't fucking try it. If we can't do it, you can't do it. Yeah. That's my message. <laughs> The whack-a-mole thing also works through time, right? Because if you, you know, you can, you can basically suppress a riot. You can go in there with cops. You can arrest everybody. You can throw them all, you know, uh, you, can, you can charge them with felonies if you want to, you know, put them away for 10 years. I mean, this is this type of thing that's being talked about. Right. But all that does is set you up for the next riot because you didn't yeah. solve the problem. We, we, have, so we have like 20 years of this playbook. So within the military, we have like all the cheat codes. We have like the Center for Army Lessons Learned is called CALL, C-A-L-L. We share this stuff fluidly. Same thing police need to do. We share this information. We have volumes of freaking books on this. In fact, I'll grab one right now. This, stuff like this right here. Center for Army Lessons Learned. There you go. We study this stuff. We have literally Harry Potter style libraries of this shit. Instead of magic, we specialize in counterinsurgency. We are the wizards of it. And we learn from our mistakes, and yet our, our political leaders don't seem to have any well, knowledge or understanding of this. Half they, of them don't read. Half of them don't read. They wouldn't read. That would mean nothing to them. And even if they did read, you've got the people who are the experts, and we have a, we're, we're living in a very anti-expert time politically. Yeah. You know, it's like we don't. You know, lessons learned. No, just crush it. You know, that's that's basically. Right. Well, I would say this too. Like, I understand some, you know, Martin Luther King said, you know, I know a lot of people, especially a lot of white people, will quote MLK for their own agenda. I try really hard not to do that. But I've studied his quote on riots. He said very clearly and unmistakably, riots are bad, but they happen for a reason. They're the voice of the unheard. You need to listen. And if you don't, you're foolish and you're making a big mistake. That is unmistakably what he said. And I 100% agree with that. And the thing is, if here's my thing, I'm not. I don't like riots. Obviously, I think destroying small business in particular is terrible. But it, I can't stop it. From we're not going to stop it from you know denouncing it. Is it going to stop from happening? If people are going to do it, at least use just war theory. At least use you know 
mm. like uh, rules of engagement, like in war. Mm-hmm. If people, a lot of people on the far left say, well, it's war. We have to, rioting works. They've read, you know, a lot of these far left people, no offense, they take Mark Bray's book to the bathroom and he just, the pages are stuck together. They fucking love that guy. They're like, Mark Bray. I'm like, I get it. You believe, you know. But if you're, well, gonna I, I like I like Mark Bray's book too. I think his book is, I know, is amazing. I know, but um, I think it's if you're going to do if you, if people are going to riot, use um, rules of engagement. Don't mistake the small mom and pop shop for the target. Like, come on. But no, it's, but it's, it's almost like. But here's what happens: is that that ends up being the destruction of mom and pop businesses, okay, and the destruction of their own neighborhoods becomes a way of being against change. Like. You, you, nobody's going to say, oh, you know, we want we want cops to keep choking out black people. OK, but they are going to say things like don't destroy mom and pop businesses. Uh, right. you know, don't riot. And so it becomes a, a proxy. It becomes another one of these dog whistles or dog foghorns to basically oppose all all social change. This is something I've learned over the last two weeks or I say uh, six weeks. I've lost count. We're all on lockdown. I've lost fucking count over the last however long since the Floyd riots. Something I've learned, and I've changed my mind on this, you know, I think people should, there should be a way to distinguish yourself from the, some of the most violent acts and say, look, the protests and the things we're supporting, don't tie us to the violent, like, don't associate us with the fringe, but we need to make clear if we're going to have that message, we need to understand better and worse ways to do that. And one big point that you made, and I agree with this, is most of the people complaining about the riots we're silent on the police brutality, and that's a problem. Mm. It's not that we can't criticize destroying small businesses, but we got to realize when we do, we need to make it clear we're also against, you know, in fact, we're overwhelmingly primarily against the systemic problem that led to the, the up, upheaval in the first place. Like we are mm. primarily, primary objective, address root causes, primary goal acknowledge the systemic problems with policing, humanize people of color. That is that is the far more important. That is the overwhelming objective. In doing that, yeah, of course we can say smashing a small business is bad, but the messaging needs to be careful that it avoids that double standard. And I still don't have all the answers to that. Um, oh, yeah. I think there's a great, I, 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 you know, I, I'm sitting here listening to you guys talk about this and, I, and, I, and I've seen your, you guys discuss this online as well. So, um, God, I'm and, sorry, man. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding. No, no, no. I know. So I, I mean, you know, and so I, I'm coming at it for, 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 I think with a relatively open mind. I, I do think I, I'm hearing you. I, I, clearly, uh, the 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 riot is the is the language of the unheard. I mean, that 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 that, that I think we're all agreed on. I think, but but I I, I tend to. But I think you guys are both right. I hate to split the baby because I think that's lazy. But like, but 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 I but but I do think you're both right. I mean, I think Sean, your point is that like, right? First of all, like, it's not like the riots are planned, right? Like they just sort of spontaneously yeah. happen. So 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 you can't sort of like strategically use a riot, right? It, it, you know. So and that goes into what you're saying, John, is that like, so you have to then frame it in a way that is useful on the back end. So, but I, but, but I do think though, but I agree with you, Sean, that like condemning the riot is important, but at the same time, like it does, it, like, right. Like, I mean, right. It, it, it does, it does convey a really, really important message. So I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to say like riots are bad. I mean, they are bad. Right. So it, it, so it, it becomes this very complicated issue. That's why I like to say that you guys are both right. Here's what I'm coming. Here's where I'm coming from. You get one or 2000 people on the street. 
I don't care how well organized you are, unless you actually have like security, unless you have your own security, you know, who's going to go through and do what John does in, 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 uh, you know, other parts of the world and identify the troublemakers, you know, and be literally like there with a sniper, you know, uh, or, or, or someone, you know, to right. just you, otherwise you can't shut down the violence because all it's no. one person and everybody else joins in. So even us, we have dealt with rights. I've been in full body armor in 120 degree heat, speaking Arabic with people trying to calm down. Sometimes our techniques work. Once it reaches a critical mass, you're okay. not stopping that riot. You're fucked. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you that. So that, that's why I think that the condemnation of riots, it's like, you know, that gets directed at the, you know, it gets directed at Democrats. It gets directed at Black Lives Matter. It gets directed at any social justice group that somehow we're advocating riots. It's like, no, you know, we're basically saying what my point, my position is that constantly gets mischaracterized is that we have to tolerate this if we want change. We have to tolerate a certain amount of collateral damage. I hate to use a, a fucking George Bush, you know, a, a Dick Cheney, a Donald Rumsfeld term. But, you know, it, it is, it no, it's, is it's, collateral it's true, damage. Though. It's true. I hate to say it, it's true. Collateral damage is necessary. We try to minimize it, but no, it's right. a thing, man. I, I, it's, we deal with it all the time. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm, what I'm hearing is that you guys aren't saying anything that's that different from each other. I mean, like, I mean, it, it, like, it, it sounds like, I mean, because like, like, John, I keep hearing you talk about framing and, and I can't, I know, I like psychology too. Framing is just, I mean, critical. I mean, it, it depends yeah. on, it, it sort of, it, it, it sort of is how we think about things. And, and, and so it's a basis upon from which we sort of make, make our deductions. I yeah. think, so I think there needs to be better messaging from Democrats. I mean, I think that like, yeah, I think that on the left, there has to be better messaging about riots. I'm not trying to say exactly. I know what that messaging is, but I do agree yeah. that, that like that, well, that first of all, like discounting them is not important or not or, 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 or not worth denouncing, I think, is 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 is. is, is is a bad idea. I think, I think Joe Biden, for example, Joe Biden coming out there, he's, he's the guy who all his entire job is just to get elected. Right. So he has to come out there and say like, no, I denounce the riots. And I think that's, I think that's good messaging. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, but there's a whole world of activists out there who are saying the opposite thing, which is just like burn the whole fucking thing down. Right. And maybe, and maybe that's not useful. Like maybe, maybe, you know, I understand the anger. Right. Sometimes in my heart and my actual heart, you know, I feel that stuff needs to be burned down because I feel that, you know, uh, even though like these, I'm not the one generally who's the victim of this oppression. Okay. I've been very privileged and, you know, I acknowledge all of that, but it seems to me that, you know, when I see this, it's, it's my embarrassment, my compassion, all these things are like, I'm tired of it. I mean, this has been going on basically my entire life. I've been observing these, these, these things not changing, you know, and getting worse. And, you know, the things that Donald Trump's saying, it's like, well, fucking burn it down then. You know, like we, if, 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 if white people aren't going to listen, what? No, I was going to say it's an, it's a natural human instinct. Absolutely. And I've seen, like I said, all over the world, when people are pushed so far, there is a blowback. That's that's a fact of human nature and Mm -hmm. social, and it's a fact of geopolitics. We don't, we, what's so weird to me is we have two decades of like very pinpoint war fighting abroad after 9-11 most of which involves population dynamics and understanding populations. We've applied like none of that here to our backyard. Yeah, what the wild. fucking Jesus Zeus's butthole is the disconnect? Well, <laughs> it's kind of like, like we spent. When I said that, but yeah, what is the yeah. disconnect? We spent, uh, you know, billions of dollars, uh, potentially maybe even trillions. I don't know, rebuilding Iraq's infrastructure after we bombed it, and we have not rebuilt our own infrastructure. It's the same thing. It's like yeah. we yeah. our own. That'll make us safer. Yeah. 
You guys want to talk about defund the police? Because I feel like that term gets so misunderstood. And there are some fringe people that want to like abolish the police. And I get that, but that's crazy. But most people, <laughs> I think what the phrase means is focus more on social services, providing a reliable safety net, which creates conditions of stability, reduces violence. This is a pattern all around the world. We can learn from war zones by doing this at home, create stability. This will make the cops job easier. Blue lives, black lives, everybody is in better, uh, everybody's safer, less people die, safety nets are good. So what they, I think what they're trying to say, not to, not to explain whatever, mansplain, widesplain, whatever, I <laughs> think what they're trying to say, because their phrase I think is so bad, defund the police is terrible branding, but okay, it is what it is. I think what they're saying is, from everyone I've talked to, focus on social services, less on up-armored vehicles to bus college parties. Like who the fuck cares about busting an underage drinking party with a freaking up armored vehicle. And next time you guys talk to Will, he's got some good stories from Raleigh, North Carolina about that shit. Dumbest stuff you ever heard. <laughs> well, focus on that. As, as far as defund the police is concerned, you know, it is really, um, I think it's also a call for performance-based investment in police forces. So if there is a police force that is not performing well, you know, um, it has certain, maybe certain amount of time necessary to reform or lose funding. And we'll put that money into a place where it can do some work. Conservatives have applied this to schools for the last 20 years, this idea of school choice. Yeah. Uh, a way to frame this for conservatives, I think I might be wrong. I think you could say, hey, the idea for improving schools that you have, whether it's true or not, just apply the logic to the police. If it doesn't sell itself to the community, and there's exceptions for like war zone type communities. But for the most part, if the police is, if it has a, just a dumpster fire relationship with the neighborhood for inexcusable reasons, fucking fire and hire new people. And they should recruit and hire the same way that our elite special operations vets people. It's not just your ability to kick indoors and shoot people. It's your um, maturity, your integrity, and your intelligence. Those I think it's so important, like what you're talking about, John, is so critical because I think that is yeah. a great sort of like bridge, right? Because you're talking about veterans. What about the like the idea of veterans going into like veterans of special ops, right? Yeah. Um, what, like, right, going into school, going into um, <clears throat> going into uh, uh, police departments, right? And 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 teaching how to deal with a population that you're trying to develop a relationship with, but that you yeah. also have to police. Right. And so that, yeah. that, that, that sort of like that multiple dynamic. And I think that's a great way to sell it to conservatives. Right. With like, hey, look, we yeah. spent all that money in Afghanistan doing this. We have 20 years of experience. Like I'm a, I, you know, I, I like guns. I know how to shoot guns. Right. Like, let's, yeah. let's get together and talk. You know, you just you just that last whatever 30 seconds was that should be a video. Like, well, you, you just summed it up. I'm serious. Like <laughs> you did. So I've been, I've written like two articles and I'm writing a book on the very thing you said about how better out of the work for the last, like, I don't know, seven years or so. I've been trying to pitch this veterans can help teach and coach and work with police. You, that's spot on. A big thing is not just the, the, the train needs to be continuous. A big thing in Jocko, you know, I guess so Jocko, right? Jocko. Will. Oh, I know Jocko. Yeah. Talked about this too. Um, how like, you know, you go through a police academy, that's your train. Then you go, you know, bust fucking 18-year-olds for drinking whatever pot. Who fucking dumb shit. Stupid training, shit. it should be training. They should be doing Gracie jiu-jitsu or whatever jiu-jitsu. They should be doing, 
you know, civil engagement scenarios where you learn how not to kill someone at a bodega over a Lucy cigarette. Yes, things are complicated. We do this all the time regularly in, in special operations or civil affairs or whatever. So training has to be continuous. If you don't do something for a while, you lose your skill. Training sure. in the Army, the idea that training is a continuous ongoing thing is as natural as breathing air. That is standard doctrine. Everywhere in the Army, and I mean this, does training continuously. Any, that, that, is, that is nothing short of that should happen. And I want to bring this back to a little bit because it seems like, you know, if we could all agree that the goal was conflict resolution and better results of policing, mm. then I don't think we'd have any trouble. But I, I think the conservative goal for policing is different. The conservative goal for policing is to bust heads, is to make people afraid and is to let certain communities know, particularly uh, communities of color, that they are, you know, um, they are going to get extra attention and extra violence. Yeah. This is the goal. We need to like divide the conservatives that are that are not like that, the ones that actually do want to see good policing. We need to pit them against. I mean, like a like an intellectual civil war. I mean, full mm -hmm. on motherfucking mm -hmm. like pit the good the, the the conservatives that that are actually against that and that really do want good policing. We need to pit them against the bad conservatives, the ones, the dog whistle, yeah. the racists. Like, we need to see a full-on schism, like a mm -hmm. full-on well, Mortal Kombat-style schism. These two, are never, these two are never going to meet. One is going to, one is going to win and the other one's going to lose. But they don't, a lot of conservatives don't realize this conflict exists. Like, a lot of moderate conservatives mm -hmm. don't seem to realize that a lot of people in their camp are diametrically opposed to American values. They don't see right. that a lot of conservatives are conservatives for terrible reasons, like you said. They mm -hmm. need to like, that needs to become more obvious. Like we need like a thousand Lincoln projects across exactly. media yeah. to say, look, if you're a conservative, exactly. your enemies are not just liberals and you should drink beer with liberals like Sean, but you should also realize a lot of the people in your camp are not your friends and you should call mm -hmm. them out. Right. I mean, I right. want to see them. I want to see them fight. I want to see a full on schism. Go like, I. Well, if they lose in November, let me tell you, there will be, you know, there's going to be a recognition of the party. Um, hey, guys, um, I'm thinking we're, we're somewhere around 90 minutes. I don't even know what the time is right now. Right. I'm thinking, I mean, like there's so much more we could go into. We didn't go into Portland. We didn't go into, you know, there's so many yeah. things, but uh, I think we're, you know, at a certain point we lose our audience. You know, people just like won't listen to something this long. Sure. So, um, uh, but I really appreciate John, uh, you coming and 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 taking the time to be here and, and share your your perspectives on it. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I want to uh, uh, thank our audience for uh, for for being with us. And uh, again, you know, we're we are the radical secular, and um, we'll be coming to you with more good info. And maybe Chris, you could take us out. Yeah, um, yeah. Just want to say thanks. Obviously, John, like I. Uh, <clears throat> conversation was just excellent. I think I had such a nice time uh, talking about Same this, here. I think. And I, and, and I love talking about solutions as well. Right. Um, and it sounds like the, what you're what you're talking about uh, it really is a proposal for for conflict resolution um, and in, in deep, profound conflict resolution. And, and, and I think that's really, really interesting. Um, so, yeah. So just thank thanks to you, John. Thank you, Sean. Um, thanks, everybody else out there. And, um, you know, um, am I for life? <laughs> right on, right on. All right, we'll, <laughs> we'll see everybody next week. Uh, thanks again. You've been listening to The Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state. 
for full video episodes. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel.